Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grilling JR with good old JR, Jim Ross himself. Jim, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm grill worthy. I'm grill worthy. I'm, <laughs> I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm enjoying my outdoor kitchen. Uh, we finally got the rain to move through here in the, our little state, and uh, it's nice to be outside. Let's talk about why we're here. It's in your house eight. Beware of dog. And I know you're thinking, uh, what in the world? Yeah, that went down on May 26, 1996 at the Florence Civic Center. Of course, it's in Florence, South Carolina. But what's interesting about this is I think it's maybe one of the craziest pay-per-views in wrestling history. Uh, it's famous for the time that the power went out to the building. So we're going to talk about the craziness that happened that night in Florence, but we're also going to talk about the news and notes happening around the show. When I first mentioned that we were going to be covering this show, uh, what came to your mind, Jim? Well, I, to be honest with you, it's one of those lost memories that you know, you'd rather not bring forward with you. I didn't, I didn't throw up my carry on, so to speak. So I really wouldn't, I hadn't thought about it in years. And so to be honest with you, uh, as I try to be here on this program, so unique concept for people in wrestling to actually be honest with each other. It's a phenomenal concept, uh, that, uh, I wasn't overwhelmed with it. I was a little underwhelmed. And then, uh, I started doing my little dab of research on that weekend and those subsequent days thereafter. And what, and I thought, well, you know, this might be pretty interesting. Then when I got your, uh, notes from your, your crack staff, I got much more excited about it. I read the notes twice last night, uh, and, and got, okay, this is, this is a hell of a good idea. So I think we're going to have a great show, but at the, in the very beginning, I was a little underwhelmed because I think at the end of the day, that whole experience there uh, in the Carolinas was a little bit, uh, uh, underwhelming and which is very unusual to say that about a wrestling event in the Carolinas. Yeah. I mean, and the Carolina fans showed up the building set for 9,400, uh, but only 4,796 attend. Uh, well they paid, I guess there's 6,000 there, but that other 1300 or so was paper. The gates only 63,000 bucks. Uh, but the real interesting story here is how the business sort of changed in terms of the way people prepared, because it's fascinating to me that the building's going to lose power because of inclement weather. I guess we should mention that. Uh, and during the opening matches, the lights flicker a little bit and allegedly some of the boys start to joke, Hey, wouldn't that be something if the power went out? And then if you're watching the show, Vince even warns that because of severe weather in the area, the event might soon be blacked out temporarily. Uh, when did you know, uh, Houston, we may have a problem here. Well, the, the weather was ugly all day and, uh, with all the AccuWeather and all the meteorological things that, that these guys can play upon women, weather folks, uh, the, the information is pretty, was pretty somber. You're getting ready to have a, you know, there's a good chance that you're going to have bad, bad weather thunderstorms, lightning, uh, so forth. And all those things, Hey, if you got direct, it's like, if you got a direct TV, for example, we all know what happens when it gets bad weather, cloudy, more than cloudy, but stormy. Sometimes you lose your direct TV signal. And that's why guys like me uh, have a cable company backup because I like my direct TV, but I don't want to be without. So that was kind of the deal. I said, well, this could be a long day because the weather is predicted to be horrible. How much will it affect our signal will be intermittent, but nobody, I don't think ever perceived that it could be total darkness. Well, it's not total darkness for the company. Of course, they're going to rebound from this. They'll call an audible and we're going to get into it. Uh, I guess we should mention that, um, 
early in the month of May, 1996, WCW announces they're going to expand nitro to two hours. And I think most of us remember eventually it went to three hours and raw being three hours these days is something everybody's talking about, but they announced that on May 27th, the day after the beware of dog pay-per-view, that's when nitro will go from one hour to two hours. And at the time raw was only doing one hour. How is that news received when you find out that, Hey, the competition's going to double up. They're going to go two hours. Well, they uh, Eric and his boys up to get up the ante and, uh, they got aggressive, even more aggressive. And, you know, it was that you could tell that by them going to two hours and them being on uh, TNT, which is that at that time was positioned as kind of the pristine of the, of the, of the Turner networks, uh, kind of building it from, you know, their own images and their own feelings about programming. It wasn't a traditional old school cable company or cable network like TBS was, and it still is. You know, you notice now TNT's got the NBA package. You got a lot of sports packages. So consequently, I think that uh, we had realized fully that there's no doubt that Eric had convinced Ted to spend some money. And I say Ted, you know, it's been 10 Ted's, 10 guys. But the, but he found the formula to the safe. And the vault was opened, and here comes the money. And it, because it, wasn't a, it couldn't have been a cheap proposition to add a second hour of television production and uh, to, the, to your. Uh, to your, to your tab. So it was pretty much these, some bitches are really serious. Not that anybody would thought, well, God, Jay, are you just you know, getting that? No, but we didn't know to what depths they were going to do and doubling their television exposure in prime time, uh, against us on Monday night raw wasn't really, uh, the front of mind awareness. We didn't all, I don't think any of us believed that was going to occur or not occur. It just hadn't, hadn't been a big thought on my end for my role. You know, I didn't have time to worry about what the hell they were doing in Atlanta. I had everything and more I could say grace over by being in, in this talent relations department and working on the air. And my schedule at that time was a little sporadic. I felt like I was that, uh, uh, the fading quarterback walking around on the sideline, carrying a clipboard and wearing a visor. It's just, I, I didn't, I, I didn't, I lost a lot of my own confidence because it wasn't being used. And I think that may have been why when we, as we talk about this, I came out full of piss and vinegar on that, uh, that repeat. Let's, uh, let's mention that this announcement that comes on May 8th about nitro expanding comes two days after the May 6th nitro. And, uh, that nitro got a 1.9 and raw got a 4.1. Now this is important to add some context because at the end of the month, when they expanded two hours on May 27th, it's not just special because it's two hours. That's also when Scott Hall shows up. And that's the day when raw gets a 2.3 and nitro gets a 2.8. Um, so it is interesting, the timing of them expanding the two hours and that being when Scott Hall, uh, showed up, uh, let's also run through some characters that I don't know when we'll talk about again. <laughs> this made the observer Meltzer wrote Tom Brandy, Tracy Smothers, Stacy Porto, Tony Anthony, and Bill Irwin were all signed on May 10th. They will at first be used at television to put guys over, but will probably be given new names and new gimmicks and some television wins to give them some credibility so they can mean something in jobbing to the bigger names. It's a way to have matches that aren't perceived as squashes on raw, but not continually have guys like Helmsley do jobs. Uh, and I, of course he mentions that Smothers, Porto and Anthony have all been longtime friends of Jim Cornette. Now, of course we know this is going to be Sal sincere, Freddie, Joe Floyd, um, T.L. Hopper, 
the goon talk me through this jim who booked this shit well uh i don't know who was who was all deeply involved in the creative at that time because it because there was it, it's not like what jr knows he just want to bury anybody you want to throw anybody on the bus i honestly god don't know i know that we were we needed we, the, the thing about these dudes that you just mentioned uh the ones that are uh were Cornette's my friends they're all of our friends so we all work with them at some point in time Venice is that small uh but they were all fundamentally sound. They could lead a match by and large. Uh, we wanted to get younger. That was one of the goals. It took us a while to get there and going to get newer, younger. And these guys could work with anybody. They were not high ticket guys. They were not uh, first round draft picks. They were good, solid pro wrestlers that, uh, you know, were looking for that one opportunity to break through. And what you always hope is that one of those guys will break through into and become a mainstream a main event talent, but look, you know, when you got this, you can't mix so much blatant and bad comedy to what these guys put, put this way were their goddamn names as they were. Did you ever really think folks that they're going to get over, even though they were good hands, I call some matches in, in, in smoky mountain involving, uh, uh, Tracy Smothers. And of course, Tracy was down at WCW as well. And, uh, Tony Anthony. And both those guys are hellacious hands. I mean, if you're a promoter or a booker and you're running a territory, you want those two guys with you because they can work baby face or heel. They're durable. They're experienced and they're not going to break the bank. If they draw, you pay them. Uh, but you ain't got to guarantee a bunch of money to guys that just want to work and, and make a living and get an opportunity. Unfortunately, uh, none of that group broke through or got over. And so their tenure in WWE was short lived. And I blame part of that on, uh, you know, a, a plumber, you know, TL hopper and the, that all that's just silly. It wasn't even funny. It wasn't cute. It wasn't topical. It was silly and silly wrestling then or now doesn't work for me. Let's, uh, I want to pick your brain about, um, a tournament that happened here in may it's five nights in Kuwait. Uh, these are sold shows. They're going down in a soccer stadium. Uh, I guess we should explain what a sold show means. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with the phrase. Well, uh, an outside promoter outside, meaning a non WWE promoter, uh, IE like a concert promoter or a, a promoter of other ticketed events, uh, bought the show. In other words, he paid WWE a flat price for five nights of wrestling in a stadium, uh, there in Kuwait. And, uh, so what we decided to do, and I was involved cause I'm kind of a tournament guy. I like tournaments. So to me, it's a, it's a step in legitimacy as far as pro wrestling being considered a sport. Uh, so we booked the tournament, uh, to have us a beginning, a middle and an end. And, uh, and also hopefully to get Ahmed Johnson over. Cause that was all, that was the, when we went to Kuwait, he was Vince's handpicked guy to be, uh, to win the tournament. So, uh. That had to be taken into consideration, and I, and I can tell you that by you looking at the, the, uh, the card and how who was working. Look at the guys that we booked uh, Ahmed Johnson with, and you kind of understand what I'm talking about: protecting uh, and keeping him in in his, keep him in his lane, bro. You know that's that was it. He he we kept him in his lane and didn't overbook him, and he beat some really good guys that could take care of him. 
So the same concept you would use for young talents to work with a guy like Tracy Smothers or Tony Anthony, you'd look, look, look at the same illustration here with this cat. So that's kind of where we are. I was looking at the notes and how we booked him. And, you know, Ahmed beat uh, uh, Aldo Montoya, PJ, uh, just incredible. Good hand, solid hand, nothing wrong with him. Uh, who else did he beat? He beat uh, Steve well, Austin. I do want to. I do want to ask why yeah. was why was Vince enamored with Ahmed Johnson? Because he wanted to create a, a black superstar, and and Bill Watts was very adamant that that could happen. And Bill Watts was trying to recreate uh, JYD. And in all due respect to Ahmed Johnson, he wasn't no JYD. He, uh, JYD had a lot different had charisma. He had it factor. And I don't know that Ahmed did past his amazing look. Uh, but that was Vince's call. That was during the time I believe where Vince, uh, uh, was looking for names for Tony Norris. And, uh, cause we brought him in for a meeting and I don't remember Cowboy being there and Cowboy wanted to name him Buck Johnson. <laughs> Buck Johnson. And when he said that in the meeting, Vince looked at me like, what are you going to do about this? And I'm going to look at him, look back at him and say, I didn't fucking hire Bill. You hired Bill. What are you going to do about this? Cause he didn't have my job. He was a consultant to Vince. So I kept, I did my work and everybody that's involved there, little area kept doing their thing. Bill was just an extra part there. And if he had been used in a more of an advisory way, he probably could have been a, a, a more of an asset by far, but, uh, you know, his, he, Bill was a little behind the time there. He, he wanted to give, uh, uh, Tony, a, a real, you know, you know, a Bobo Brazil, Ernie Ladd type sounding name, you know, Bearcat. I said, so we went, well, I remember one day we had a meeting and we went over all that stuff and I made a joke at it because I thought it was hilarious. I said, why don't, okay. I got some names for us today for Tony pork chop. How's that one? Pork chop, pork chop Johnson. <laughs> or how about big old Johnson? <laughs> you know, so you come up with a million James names for the guy and they're all they're ridiculous. We call him Bearcat. We call him Bobo. We can call him sugar bear. Every black name you can think of that has been stereotyped on these poor guys over their lifetime was trying to be reprised. So we went the other way and it was kind of stylish at that time, Conrad, for these, uh, you know, what, what are the Muslim names? I don't mean to sound like a, an asshole here, but I mean, are they the Ahmeds and some of those names where, where their ethnicity indicates was what we were shooting for. So it's like, uh, I remember, uh, he may have had some, he may have been named a little bit after, uh, uh, what's the football player's name that married Felicia Rashad, uh, Ahmad Rashad. Yeah. Ahmad Rashad. Yeah. And his real name was Bobby Moore back in his, his uh, early football days, but he, Ahmed, he was a good looking guy. Spoke well, not Tony, this other guy. <laughs> Let's talk about, uh, Kuwait. Is there any pushback from any of the boys or does anybody in the office say, uh, is it okay to go to Kuwait? Should we go to Kuwait? Is that all right? I don't think at that time, there's no way in hell we would have sent anybody, a, a truckload of guys over there. Uh, and if we thought obviously there's any, I would say any, any imminent danger at that time, I don't know the complexion of the country now. Uh, and I would suggest that we could make an argument that going to Saudi Arabia might be considered in today's world, uh, maybe more, uh, sketchy than, uh, going to Kuwait back in those days. But you know, the, the, the accommodations are excellent. They had good food. We knew that we were going to be able to generate a good, healthy payroll. 
And the guys that went over there were going to make good paydays without a doubt, because we already had the money. We knew what the bottom line was going to be because it was a sold show. We didn't have to worry about how many tickets are sold or how many t-shirts are sold or any of those things to generate the payroll already, already in, in place. So I, I thought we did a pretty good job of that whole thing. The only, you know, I think now, isn't that, is that the trip that Vader went crazy on the newsman? No, that was 1997. That was the next year. Okay. Well, uh, I, I don't think we had any uneventful situations there. I remember, uh, the talent had a great time, uh, by and large, cause the footage we saw, we couldn't use a lot of it because it's, it was comedy, uh, over overtly comedy, overtly comedic. I remember Jerry Briscoe getting involved in a, in a dog pile and he was the agent that said ringside. So he was having fun with the boys and, and they were having fun with him. It's just a fun deal in that, but they, the paydays were pretty good there on that, that show. So I don't remember anybody bitching about it. And to be honest with you, Conrad, if somebody had not wanted to go, you simply just don't book them. One guy not going is not going to is not going to turn the, the turn the wheel anyway. So if somebody wants to bitch and raise hell, and all of my family is always. I always like the a lot of the wrestlers always use their families as excuses. Uh, well, I I, I got to be. I want to be home with my family. They there's the same guys that tell you that while they're nailing some stripper in Sheboygan. Oh God, so, I love you, Jim. Well, really, I mean, come on, it's another excuse, and that's like the wrestlers getting in trouble. They either, they fall on their sword by saying, you know, they need counseling or they're getting religion. A lot of those guys do that because it's a cop out. It's weak. It's weak. So we didn't have any weak guys. Everybody wanted to go. It seemed like nobody resisted the booking. And of course you have to tell them what we're going to do. Here's where we're going to this thing. Here's what we want to accomplish while we're there. And in the meantime, you're going to make some good bread. And at the end of the day, if they're comfortable, somewhat comfortable with one of the two C's, the creative the, the other C cash always gets them. Well, you guys were not signing, uh, a lot of cash to your developmental territory signees, and it makes the observer on May 13th, uh, two developmental signees, the Punisher, who I believe his real name is Ben Buchanan. He really meant bull Buchanan or Barry Buchanan mm-hmm. and a fellow named Dwayne Johnson, the son of Rocky Johnson and grandson of Peter Maivia were both signed to developmental contracts. The developmental deals basically pay the guys $300 or so per week to augment their income while gaining experience, which in each's case will likely be in the USWA. So, uh, these guys had two totally different career paths. I, I would say it worked out for the rock. <laughs> yeah, it did. It worked out real well. He was, uh, he was a natural and, but I want to tell you something. Don't sleep on uh bull Buchanan. If he had been booked a little bit better and he had, he had continued to raise his game. He could get his game raised to the level that uh, his body says it should have been. Uh, but both those guys had upsides, but obviously, uh, I never signed anybody that was just like, like Dwayne, uh, you know, totally green. He said, well, he's the third generation guy. That, that's true. So he heard about wrestling at the, at the supper table and that helps, but he hadn't been in the ring. He hadn't worked. He hadn't took, taken bumps. He hasn't, he hadn't been on the road doing the stuff. So, uh, I, I told the story. You know, where I, I was at this little restaurant in, uh, in near Davie, Florida, where he was living. And we went to this little Cuban restaurant to eat, he and I, and, uh, and I told people, I remember vividly what he ordered. He ordered uh, grilled chicken, like three breasts of grilled chicken, uh, black beans and yellow rice and a great big old unsweet tea. So I said, like that girl in the, that woman in the, when Harry met Sally, I'll say, I said, I'll have what he's having. It'd be a big shot, right? Except he had a tank top on. And if I had been wearing a tank top, people thought I just had a litter of pups and would run their ass out of the restaurant. So in any event, 
<laughs> uh, every woman, every woman in the house and some that didn't even work there came by our table to see if we needed more water or tea just to get a look at him. So now I'm thinking, no, okay. So I see this, I'm doing some market research here. I'm just eating. So then I see these, these men are in there eating and then looking and glancing over and glancing over. They recognized me. They didn't have a clue who he was. Now I think about that in today's world. <laughs> that could not, that would be the farthest saying from the truth. But then he had never been on television. You know, he'd had some success playing football at the U down in Miami. He'd been cut from the Calgary Stampeders practice squad. And so, uh, the guys would come by and say, Hey, JR, how you doing? What are you doing down here? Blah, blah, blah. So then I said, well, I'm recruiting. And so they, they didn't give no pushback. They didn't give any, they were, they were, they were also respectful and in awe of this young kid. So now I said, okay, I got market research in the women. I got market research in the men. It's generally accepted. He's got a great smile. He's got an amazing physique. He's six, four, five, and he's got this great pedigree. So to speak to Meltzer's, uh, 300 and he's right. A lot of guys, we paid 300 a week to get started. Uh, and, but Dwayne was not one of those guys. Dwayne got a lot more money than that because when you, the playing the games of the, the negotiating game. So I got to events. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to pay this guy X. It was six figures. And we're not going to have to worry about him going to the other guys. We're going to we're looking around. Let's just shut this deal down right away. And so we did, and we shut it down right away. And that's when, uh, and I was going to buy lunch. We shook hands. We had a deal. And he said, I'd like to buy lunch, but I don't have any money. Another statement. He'll, you'll never hear him say anymore. And he says, uh, uh, I got seven bucks to my name, which by the way, is the name of his production company, seven bucks entertainment, a little trivia for you. Uh, but Dwayne was a can't miss guy. So you don't want I didn't want him back on the market. I wanted to close our deal. And I believe I'm not mistaken that we had, I think I called, uh, the home office there at Stanford and had them, uh, wire a, a bonus check, a, a signing bonus, uh, you know, to the guy's account. So, you know, it, it ingratiated us. It was the right thing to do. And we got our guy. So successful mission on that behalf all over those chicken breasts and those black beans and rice. Well, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Mel Sword Wright reports are that Jim Helwig is easier to get along with this time than he was in the past. <laughs> yeah, Although right. he did arrive two hours late for an autograph session the day of the MSG show. And of course, that's the famous curtain call show, which we covered in our archives last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he would report a few weeks prior to that that Jim Elwig's ultimate creations and Titan Sports have joined together in a business partnership where Titan was going to promote Warriors Gym in Phoenix and use it as a WWF training center and also promote his other merchandise, including his comic book. And of course, in return, he hasn't left yet. So we've talked about that comic book uh, with Bruce Pritchard before uh, mm-hmm. and what a colossal flop that it was. Yeah. You mentioned last week that you were involved in those meetings with Linda and, and, and he's dropping the F bomb left and right. Was, was he making those demands? Like you got to do something with my gym and you got to push my comic book. Is that all when that happened right there? Yeah. In that, that time frame, he, he, uh, he knew he had leverage. Uh, he knew we needed stars. Uh, and, uh, you know, we needed, he needed, a uh, we needed, we needed a fix when he's something to have, when he's something to create an interest, a buzz, ignite things, whatever cliche you can think of. I thought, you know, look, I worked with him in the mid South when he's Sting's tag team partner as a blade runners. Uh, he was really, really quiet. then, didn't say a lot. Uh, and, and, but he was not real well liked by everybody on the roster. Or maybe they don't ever really like everybody on the roster, but he wasn't liked by many. 
because he was so standoffish and somewhat aloof. Uh, Sting, on the other hand, Steve Borden, just the opposite. You know, he was very outgoing and, and genuine, still is. Uh, so uh, I, I just thought that, you know, the whole he was going to hold Vince for ransom. You know, so you couldn't keep giving money and money, more money, more money, more money. You had to figure out ways to uh, incorporate his other assets that he could he could uh, create some cash on uh, in other ways. And the, and the comic book was one of those ways to get more paydays in, in Hellwig's pocket without coming out of the company's pocket. What would come out of the company's pocket is obviously the in-kind work of promoting it. Uh, I thought him to, him to be a tremendous boor, boor, boor. I, I like that word. Uh, and a boor, B-O-R-E. He's, he, he, I, I, I just didn't, for a guy that was getting a second chance, who had limited in-ring skills as it was, who had a magnificent look, who had been booked like a, like a crazy man, amazingly well, uh, and he handed it to Hogan. Hogan put him over in Toronto, and that made the guy. But, but he just, he never got better and he thought he was great. And he had this, he, we were there and I remember talking about this word. Have you ever heard, heard him talk about back in the day, the word destrucity? Yes. And Bruce has talked about it on our show. It's what the hell do you figure? And now that you've heard it from Bruce, uh, what do you, what is your, what is your opinion? What is destrucity in your view? Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Do you have any uh, idea? Well, I mean, um, no, me neither. And I was in the meetings. <laughs> Destricity to him was a word that had multiple meanings and a little, this word, a little, that word, you put them all together and you make destricity. But, uh, when you got a, a, a females and in, in, in that era, maybe it's a lot, it's less this now, but at that time, Conrad, when you got women in present, this is maybe just how I was raised. You know, Linda's such a genteel Southern lady. Sure. And really, she's wonderful soul. And gosh almighty, he's F-bombing this and F-bombing that. And I know how my dad would have been if somebody had said that in front of my mother. But my dad wasn't trying to book the ultimate warrior and, and save us, save a, you know, get, get us, create a spark. It was the same argument that I had with Vance or debate more specifically. We got to create new. We can't keep repackaging old. So, and that was how I really believe that. So he was, I didn't, he, he was easier to work with from the standpoint that he was, uh, uh, getting paid. He needed the money, uh, and needed it pretty badly. As I understand, I might be wrong on that, but I heard he needed the cash, but boy, he was high maintenance. I don't think we've ever had anybody that I can recall when I was at WWE, those 26 years, that was as high maintenance for lesser, uh, reward than Jim Helby was in that return in the in mid nineties. Well, somebody else you were trying to get a return on and you know, we, you've talked about this before. I think you alluded to it last week. Maybe Yokozuna, uh, he is self-reporting according to the observer that he's lost 33 pounds, but Meltzer would comment at his size is really hard to notice. And he says that he had suffered some sort of a calf bruise immediately upon returning, but he's able to work through it. And after this pay-per-view, he's supposed to be headed back down to the 
Duke weight loss clinic for another four weeks. You've mentioned this before. Um, is this a Vince McMahon initiative or is this something that you sort of spearheaded? Well, I spearheaded it because it was becoming, it's not going to be a situation where I'm going to walk into Vince's office and I'll say, Hey Vince, by the way, uh, uh, one of our top stars, the biggest monster here we got just, uh, can't get licensed because he, the doctor says he's morbidly obese. Well, the doctor did tell us that, and he was in, in some areas being challenged for his, uh, for to pass physical. That's when the athletic commissions had still had a bigger hand in uh, managing, uh, you know, just like they would a fighter or whatever. Now MMA, all those things. Uh, it was, they were licensed or they were sanctioning or whatever you want to say. They're managing the talent. So we we're getting close to where if one state, one commission state as a rule suspended a talent, an athlete, a boxer, whatever, all the other commissions would honor it. So then we would have a 600 pound, uh, monster heel that we couldn't book because his weight kept getting out of control. And, you know, look, here's the deal. We, it's a hard, it's an interesting segue going from Hellwig to Rodney, uh, to Yoko because they're entirely different kinds of people. Uh, and Rodney was a wonderful, gentle soul, a good spirit. You couldn't get mad at him. He had that great smile always, you know, he's just a great personality. You just wanted to be, you wanted to, you wanted to hang around him, but I I wanted to live longer. And I know his family was concerned about it. And when I eventually, why are we overreacting? I said, I don't think we're overreacting because look at the, look at the doctor's report on how they describe his overall health, morbidly obese. I said, Vince, it's just a matter of time. So we got to intervene here. I think it's your money. I'm, I'm not trying to spend all your money. I'd like to try now, but I, I can't. <laughs> I'd like to try to, he's got a lot of money, right? That's what I'm saying. I don't want to work there. I just like his money. Uh, but Yoko uh, was so likable, you couldn't get angry at him. I know that I sent uh, him and Leon Vader to uh, Duke Weight Loss Clinic. Same issues. You're getting older, weight's harder to lose, it's harder on your joints. This ain't ballet, man. And the fact that those big son of guns were traveling on a regular basis uh, was also daunting. So I remember sending it to Duke and the report came coming back a week later and it gained weight. You know, I, I, I spent a lot, we're spending a lot of money on this damn thing. So I'm thinking, how the hell can that be? Well, then upon further review, as referee Jim Tunney would say in the NFL back in the day, upon further review, we find out our two lads were going on excursions in the evening to a drive through chicken place. <sighs> <laughs> And the old, the old fried chicken hex comes about and bites them on the ass. They, they like their, they were hungry and that's a defiant thing. And I kept trying to tell them that's, that was how that was. I, I had, you know, you gotta just change your diet, change your nutrition, man. Just change. You can't do the same shit and expect a different result. It ain't going to happen. So that's kind of where we were there. It's just uh, it was too, too bad. And look, here's what happened. Look, look at the, look at the end story. Yoko Zuna passes away very, very much too young. And Leon dies of, uh, of heart issues. Uh, and he, he wasn't an old man. Leon still had, Leon still had many, many good years left as far as being a, a, a father and, and all that stuff. So it was bad. It was bad. And I just didn't want to see, I didn't want to be around and, and them be on my watch and them die. There's nothing in the world worse. If you love your talent. And it's not a, the boys in the office relationship all the time where you actually have a relationship with the guys and their family. When we lose one, 
it's, it's the most unsettling thing that I've ever encountered because I never had any siblings to, I didn't have any siblings. So I didn't have any of that close death there. Uh, it just was horrible. So I, we tried to prevent it Conrad because look at, let's be honest about it. At one time, Yokozuna and Vader were two of the greatest super heavyweights in the history of all of wrestling. Yep. And I, I remember having a conversation, the last conversation, one of the last I had it with Rodney, I said, Rodney, you got to change. I know it's hard. You can't eat those turkey tails dipped in mayonnaise. I've done that with him. Uh, deep fried turkey tails dipped in mayonnaise and eat those some bits like they're chiclets. Boom, boom, boom. Um, so I said, but well, here's the deal. You don't, you're going to pull a refrigerator Perry here. You're going to eat yourself out of a goddamn job. And that's, that's senseless. It's uncalled for. You don't need to do that. But we couldn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't do well. I didn't, I didn't sell him on changing his diet and his nutrition. And unfortunately it caught up with him. Uh, let's talk about, uh, the show. Let's get to in your house. Beware of dog. Meltzer would write that, um, power went off in the building for more than an hour and viewers, choice viewers were told that the power was off in the building while request viewers were simply told to stand by. And after about 25 minutes of a blank screen, a clip aired of Vince McMahon and Jerry Lawler imploring viewers to stay tuned and they'd attempt to bring them the undertaker and gold dust and Shawn Michaels, David boy Smith matches. And McMahon also announced that matches were taking place in the same building and that they would air them during the 528 replay showing. Uh, and Meltzer would say it's only due to Memorial day weekend that the WWF even had a Tuesday night showing for that in your house show as they figured the initial buy rate would be down because people were out of town and many of them uh, could be hooked into buying a replay a few days later. By the time the power was restored, only about 25 minutes were left in the show. And they only had the Shawn Michaels, David boy Smith match, which was a major disappointment and ended the show on a very sour note. And there were a lot of people surprised. They didn't do a Shawn Michaels, David boy Smith rematch on the replay, uh, after the week match, the first time out. Uh, so while the podcast or while the pay-per-view rather broadcast is shut down, they present the scheduled matches in the arena using battery operated cameras and a low power <laughs> generator, making the matches barely visible to spectators or suck. In other words, yes. And, and it, looked, foot, it was horrible. It's horrible. It's nowhere near close to, to Broadway quality. So they're going to air three matches live from North Charleston, South Carolina during the replay show. So you guys are trying to make the best of a bad situation, but when do you realize Hey, we've lost power and guess what? We don't have a fucking generator. Well, that changed, you know, uh, that was a big change. I remember the other generator issue was the, during the XFL game one time in LA, I think it was, uh, well, here's the deal. There was no precedent, uh, regarding this matter. I don't know that anybody on that team administratively or, or, or uh, performer wise had ever been remotely in something like this. Uh, so none of us had, okay. I remember the last time that happened, we did this. No, all right. I was working in that territory and we did that. It just didn't happen. So it was unprecedented. We were all in uncharted waters, not sure what the next turn in the road was going to reveal. And, uh, it was just one of those, one, another one of those crazy ass pro wrestling journeys 
that you get on sometimes. And then when you look back at it, you say, what the hell, what the hell were we doing? What were we thinking? Could we have done this better? But there was no precedent to Conrad. So I think it was a lot of indecision, confusion, and everybody looking for an answer. And of course, the only, when you have a company where you are the guy and, and that you have one primary person that uh, dictates all the answers and delivers all that information. So it, being Vince, so then everybody was looking at Vince, like, okay, Vince, what's your, we know you're a genius. What are you going to do? And I don't know that we handled it right or wrong. I don't know that what, well, it's never happened again, but there's, you can bet your ass that generators are not, uh, are not absent any longer. Yeah, it's, uh, it's wild that this is the way it goes down. Um, of the three matches that were shown during the second airing, there are some changes. Savio Vega and Steve Austin is the biggest change because there is a now there's now a stipulation made that if Steve Austin loses and he does, Ted DiBiase has to leave the WWF. And this is due to the fact that DiBiase gave notice a few days prior that he would be leaving the WWF for WCW when his contract expired. Now process what a big deal that is because Ted DiBiase has been a part of the company going back to what? 87. So a really, really long time. Uh, and allegedly his new WCW deal is going to be three years for two twenty five, two fifty, and two seventy five. And he's going to be working of course, as an announcer and a manager. Uh, he's only 42 years old here, which is kind of shocking to think about. Uh, but he's taken a, uh, disability deal from Lloyd's of London where they paid out a major lump sum after a career ending neck injury. So he can't take bumps, but I mean, the million dollar man has been a part of the WWF forever. And now he's giving notice. Uh, how do you remember him giving notice and why the change from the first show to the second show did it happen in between? What do you remember about the timing? I'm thinking that the, the, uh, timing may have been, uh, that we found out that he was, Teddy was going to leave, uh, between, between that, that time period. I don't recall going into that uh, original pay-per-view event, knowing that Ted was going to go, go South to Atlanta. It was a good hire by WCW because Teddy's a great pro and he helped a lot of people. He's a good talker. Uh, you know, he's more, he's not one dimensional. So, uh, but also, uh, we were trying, and let's, I'll, I'll give, I'm going to give Vince credit for this. Austin would confide in me. He didn't want a manager and he had no issues at all with Ted DiBiase. Any wrestler that's got their head out of their ass are, are going to tell you that Ted DiBiase is one of the finest in-ring tacticians that they ever wrestled. He's also a good Christian man who had made some mistakes in his lifetime, but had re resurrected that spirit. And as he is today, uh, I know he's going to be, uh, uh, Teddy, Teddy's a big part of a lot of these events. Is Teddy going to be at, at Starcast? Of course he is. Yes, sir. So how would he, so the point is that he's one of the all time greats. He's a hall of fame guy. The talent love being around him because he's positive. And here's what he can do. He can give them information. They can't get from a producer or an agent because he's different. He's unique. He has his own set of skills. So Teddy leaving Vince just wanted to make sure that Teddy's was, was, uh, kind of paid attention to, in other words, I'm trying to say is that Austin didn't, we saw Austin was going to become something very special and we have a very special talent who doesn't want a manager, nor does he need a manager. And the last thing that Steve needed was a title by the name of ringmaster. 
that was that was another joke. In another way, when you see a talent, you go to the talent and say, "What do you think of this name?" Well, if they don't like it, you can sell. You can they'll tell you if they don't like it by their expression. Don't hang somebody with a gimmick that they hate, just to prove that you got the bigger uh, the bigger Johnson in the in the room. It's stupid. Keep your talent happy. Prioritize the talent's feelings and the talent's image and, and the talent's of, uh, spirit first instead of your own as a creative person. And uh, watch one of the, I talk about watch some of the things. He, one thing he did really well was he would get main event guys to emotionally invest and contribute to uh, their um, their program, their storyline, their angle. And, and that way they bought in, they had ownership. They're going to give more effort, more creativity, blah, blah, blah. So Steve wanted to get in that role. He'd been working all his life to get to WWE. He didn't have a great experience at WCW at the end of going out. The exit was not great. I can identify with that, but didn't. So he's just trying to make up for lost time and being the ringmaster and being managed by Ted DiBiase was not what he was looking for, but it had nothing to do with Teddy. It could have been any manager. It could have been Jim Cornette. It could have been Bobby Heenan. It could have been anybody. He just didn't want a manager. So, uh, until, and if you got a talent that that's going to have that much potential, Conrad, you owe it to your company and you owe it to the talent to give it a try. And luckily we did that. And the rest is history, as they say. So, uh, but when, when Teddy, when Steve was talking to Vince and myself about not having a manager, the one thing that Vince and I would discuss is that Vince wanted to make sure that we didn't disrespect Ted. He'd been a loyal guy. He'd been there a long time He'd contributed a lot. He'd been a big player. And so then he comes up, he gets an opportunity to go south with the opposition, but for his family's sake, make a whole lot more money. So uh, I, that's kind of where we were there. It kind of got us out of a spot because very soon we were going to have to make that cut, make that change better said. And so that we didn't have to make that change. Teddy helped do it for us. And so then I think everybody seemingly thus far has lived kind of happily there thereafter. Talk to me a little bit about the na 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 song. I, I know that this sounds silly, but uh, about the what? The na 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 song. Na 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 na. Hey oh. hey. So apparently, oh, yeah. Bruce <laughs> says that Vince McMahon has deep affection for that song, and anytime someone has a going away or loser leaves town or whatever, <laughs> we've got to have the na 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 song. Yeah, that's a, that was Steam, right? A band called Steam sang the song. Hey, hey, goodbye, whatever. I don't know. I, I, I'm with you. We played that a lot. <laughs> we played that a lot. I think I got, I got it played for me a couple of times walking out of there. Uh, <laughs> I guess I didn't realize he had a, he's got a lot of unique uh, little, uh, picadillos in that respect. You know, we all talk about the sneezing and all this other stuff, but yeah, that's that song. I hadn't thought about that. That was a great one. That's a good point. He just, he's, he likes the song. If this McMahon, if this McMahon had another, uh, uh to me. If he had another, uh, he had more than 24 hours a day on, on, on available I, and he could do it. He would make money doing music. He's a, he loves music as much as anybody I've ever been around. That's not in the music business. So, uh, I could see that happening very easy, but I could see that affinity for that song and other songs. You know, I, he, you ought to see Vince, uh, uh, seat dance in a car going 90 and our song come on the radio and. Turn it up, Jr. Okay, here we go. Turn it up louder, uh, louder. Then he sings, but the main thing, he's dancing, and he's doing that Elaine thing. Vince McMahon doing the Elaine, 
at 90 effing miles an hour on an interstate highway is one of the more unique experiences of my professional life or my personal life. And then when he sees that you're getting uncomfortable, then he'll squeeze out one of those nice high protein farts and lock all the windows. So you're literally gagging. So now we're driving too fast. We're dancing to some really loud music. And now the, the odor is overwhelming. That's a day in the life of that's going from one town to the next on the, on television. It was a, the, the sound show never ended, which has been a hell of a lot of fun, quite frankly, more often than not. Bob Holly gets a win over Isaac Yankum. Uh, this is just, uh, one day before Scott Hall debuts on nitro, uh, and changes the business with the, the formation of the NWO. We still got a race car driver and a fucking evil dentist on the pay-per-view here. <laughs> yeah. How that draw? Uh, our, our actual show starts. That was a dark match. Of course, our actual show starts when the smoking guns capture the WWF tag team titles, beating the Godwins in just under five minutes. And Sonny's going to come out, uh, as a co-manager of the Godwins with the idea that she's swindled Phineas into, uh, you know, sort of swooning her a little bit, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, no heat at all. According to uh, Meltzer and uh, we get a quarter star, uh, chat me up. What'd you think about? the Godwins and the pig farmers and the smoking guns, lots of Southern more country gimmicks here in the time of the WWF. Yeah, that's uh, and I'm sure it wasn't to the liking of a lot of people. That's why they've made the Godwins look like they're off the set of deliverance and inbred. They could be each other's cousin and uncle or nephew at the same time. That was the stereotypical way, uh, to, you know, urinate down the leg of a, of a country boy. Uh, and, but I, there, there were, here's the thing from my role. Now, from your role as being a fan, you may not have liked their work. You may not like their TV persona. From my perspective, I had two guys that were big, tough, durable. I could rely on the talent. I said it many times, the number one attribute to get hired by me was to show me your, your, you are a reliable performer, reliability. So I liked the guys. Were they, are they, were they, were they meant to be draw on top and, and close shows? No, but they had a role and they, they knew it and they did it well. Uh, I thought the smoking guns were just an outstanding team because, uh, uh, their, their athleticism, they had great looks, lean six, three, six, four guys, you know, uh, Billy and Bart were excellent athletes and Billy guns, a hall of fame guy. And, and so I liked them. Uh, I thought that it was time for a change when they changed. They, they seemed like the, it seemed like their act had gotten stale as a babyface combination. And I think the hope was adding Sonny uh, to their mix would uh, help facilitate that change and give people a reason to uh, to boo them. So, uh, you know, it was one of those experiments that you try, and it, it just didn't quite pan out, but it, on paper, it looked like it had some opportunities and some uh, potential. Let's keep it moving here. Uh, let's talk about, uh, the next match. We've got Mark Marrow pinning Hunter Hearst Helmsley, 16 minutes, 23 seconds. Uh, Meltzer didn't hate it. He gave it three stars. Um, obviously we know Hunter Hearst Helmsley is going to go on to be one of the biggest stars in the business, but Mark Marrow is actually the guy who comes in from WCW with a little bit of fanfare. Uh, why was Vince so high on Mark Marrow? Carry me back. Well, 
Vince, I think, was a fan of the Johnny B. Bad character that Dusty Rhodes created down in WCW. And to Mark's credit, uh, he played off that little Richard thing uh, really well. And so that was the sizzle, the steak, the sports entertainment uh, package that Vince uh, embraces more often than not. And and Mark was a well-spoken guy, you know, a very well-conditioned guy, looked good. But I remember meeting with him. And he brought his wife with him and that, that flipped the switch. Everything's all bets are off. Now he said, and we left, she left the me, everybody all left the meeting. I came back, you know, I showed him to showed him out thanked him for being there and got to make sure the ride was good and all that. So here I get a call. It was V McMahon. Okay. Here I come. He said, did you see what I saw? <laughs> yes, I think I did. I think I did. He said, I'm glad we're signing this. I'm glad we're signing Mark because she's the money. So I think you're right. I, and I would just, the old ass kissing. Yeah. Yeah. She had it. You go back and look at that era, man of, uh, of arena. And she was so brand new. She didn't know how to be what she was supposed to be. She, she, nobody was giving her a lot of instruction. You know, I'll say this back in those days, uh, to, uh, help bring a woman along. The only thing I could do was to make sure that the people that she was surrounded with, like the Ivories and, you know, uh, Jackie Moores and jazz and all, and all, all those ladies that had experience, uh, they were the ones I was relying on to help, uh, Rena raise her game and arena's credit. She was in great shape. Uh, she was a cardiovascular machine, but she just didn't know the wrestling business. And, uh, so I think that was, Rena was the, the, you know, in all due respect to Mark, uh, Rena was the, 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 the person or the, the object that flipped the switch on getting Mark, uh, under a more brighter light. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's weird to think about, you know, how strange the wrestling business is and how it all sort of, I don't know, gets tangled up, you know, with, with knowing what we know now about the star that Rena would become and, and who she's with now and how she even got into the business and. You know, one of the old things that I've heard a lot of old timers talk about way back in the day was, Hey, whatever you do, keep your wife away from your business. And you never really adopted that theory with Jan. Why is that? Well, she was an asset and she was not, uh, uh, looking for doc- gossip or dirt. She'd rather have a long conversation with the town about, uh, some meal that she cooked or, uh, some Louis Vuitton attire or your wife would probably like this type thing, or she was certainly, uh, at the bigger events for a lot of the talents to bring their wives and her kids. She was amazing. Jan was amazing. So, uh, I think it comes down to a thing. Uh, a lot of those guys giving that advice, Conrad about not bringing your wife to work, blah, blah, blah. Uh, a lot of those guys didn't want their wives at work because they didn't, they didn't want to be compromised. They wanted to make sure they kept that, that life uh, separate from their home life. And they'd rather their wife be home barefoot and making biscuits as opposed to being at the events, but they would tolerate a WrestleMania trip or whatever. But my wife was so, I, I trusted her. She was a big asset to me. And it wasn't one of those deals where, well, he said this and she said, it, it was never that she might say, well, uh, I talked to so-and-so's wife, boy, they're really happy. Jr. They seem to be really happy They're They got their taxes paid all that stuff. You've been preaching these guys. They got their taxes paid. They're so grateful, blah, blah, blah. I got that feedback, but not the dirt feedback. Cause I didn't want the dirt feedback. My God. So, but she was a, she was an asset. She was an asset. And I can tell you this, 
there were times when we had talent to our home that she would cook for them. And I remember one time Austin comes over and he brings his laundry. He's been on the road for several days and she did his laundry. And then I find out, hell, she's, we're all sitting there talking and the conversation is more about her and, and the house that we bought and she's remodeling and all that stuff, redecorating, I should say. Um, and that was a conversation. It wasn't about who you're going to work with next or how does that pay off or you want to work on a new finish or whatever. It wasn't even about that. It, she, she, she led the conversation and she made whoever, whomever was there feel like they were very, very important because by God they were. And then those talents leave my home with that kind of treatment. And they go back into the, uh, locker room and you know, wrestlers telephone, telegraph, tell a wrestler, they're going to say, hey, I was over with JR's the other night. His wife cooked me a hell of a meal, man. She's a good cook. What a nice lady. All right. So now JR's kind of a decent guy. He's got a decent wife at least. Something must, he must be doing something right. Maybe he's okay. Maybe he's not typical office. So I, I loved her on those trips and doing those things. And I just wish she was here today to do it, do some more. I'd love to have her in Las Vegas in a couple of weeks. Uh, Wade Keller is going to write, uh, about the Savio Vega, Austin strap match. They're going to go more than 15 minutes, even though they're in the dark and they're whipping the shit out of each other with these straps, <laughs> even though yep. no one can see it. Uh, these guys have, um, been wrestling. Uh, a lot here. Of course, we know that they've had some TV matches. We know that they had a match at WrestleMania 12. We know they're going to wrestle, uh, for the King of the ring tournament. Uh, Savio Vega is going to be somebody that Steve Austin is going to credit with really helping him get ready for the big push. What has Steve told you about these early matches with Savio? Well, Savio was, uh, he said the fact that same thing you said, Savio was a big part of Steve getting comfortable in that role of being moving up the card and being in a higher profile place, you know, he had a couple of small runs and, uh, you know, runs, uh, in uh, WCW, you know, us champion, I think, uh, he was a tag champion, I believe. Uh, but you know, being in a WWE was the, his goal. Like it was for all of us in, in the many of us in that, in that time frame, and still is for a lot of guys. Uh, Savio added stability and gave Steve confidence that he could work with anybody and work in a, a variety of styles and, and still get his match done. You know, uh, these strap matches are not easy. Uh, you know, I got booked in a country whipping match with Jonathan coachman as a joke. Uh, it got great ratings, but we never did another, we never drew a dime on it. Never sold a ticket on it. Never had a t-shirt even for God's sakes. So, uh, it, it was just Savio gave brought toughness, intensity, and he, he proved to Steve that if you will write, if you will wrestle and compete at this level, as an intense badass, you're probably going to, at the end of the day, draw yourself a lot of money. So I think Savio gave Steve confidence, a little polish, some kind words when he needed it. And again, at that point in time, remember Steve was very, uh, Steve was very uncomfortable with the DiBiase thing and the ringmaster name and having a manager and all these things. So, uh, Savio eased all that, those issues. And I think basically said, Hey, look, you keep doing what you're doing. Don't let anybody bullshit. You don't let anybody change it. Be a, a monster. Be that middle linebacker that WWE has been missing a headhunter, a buckus, somebody that's a badass. and you being a badass is going to make yourself a lot of money. And then God, who knew that off the three, six teams gonna come along and all that stuff. So Salvio was a great, Salvio was, I never saw Salvio had a bad, had a bad match. And the other thing about it is. Uh, for, for young, uh, brash talents, 
that didn't want to respect the locker room. He was one guy that would maintain some law and order. That's why he was so close to Undertaker. He was, uh, Salvio was one of Undertaker's guys and, and, and he, because he earned it, he earned the respect. He was a badass and a really and a sharp guy. You know, he, we look at that damn Puerto Rico thing. Unfortunately, it's just one dimensional with Brody getting murdered, but shoot, uh, you know, Salvio has been a big star in Puerto Rico. He's been a booker and all that stuff. He just had a good way of talking to talent. And I think that he helped make Steve comfortable. And that was something that we could always be indebted for. Let's talk about the match here. Uh, Wade would write during the ring introductions for Steve Austin, Savio Vega, lightning struck a transformer supplying power to Florence, South Carolina, blackening the entire arena and fans pulled out lighters to temporarily light the arena. And within five minutes, emergency generators supplied enough power to faintly light the ring. And Howard Finkel spoke to the crowd with a megaphone. So <laughs> yeah. talk to me about this. You're in the oh, building. God. It goes completely black. Where are you when this happens? Backstage. I think I was producing announced talent. I think I was sitting at the griddle position. And, and uh, I think that's where I was. And the lights go out backstage too, of course, not just in the arena, but when they go out backstage, um, is it a, a collective? Oh shit. Well, yeah, but we, it wasn't like. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know this was going to happen. We all kind of knew something was going to happen or we, or we're going to get very, very lucky to get through the night without any incidents regarding a power source. And, uh, when it happens, like, okay, well, there it is. So then the question became what happens next? You know, can we finish the show or is, is this going to be rectified? Is this problem going to be solved? And of course we know the answer to that it wasn't solved that night. So. What's Vince McMahon, you know, you can't produce him on commentary anymore, right? You've lost complete power. Right. Yeah. He's well, he's out there next to the King and I'm still walking around carrying my clipboard and my visor, wearing my visor. So I'm not in, in direct communication with him. Uh, but you know, he was obviously pissed off and he was frustrated. You know, he's a perfectionist man. And Vince is in, uh, Goddamn son, pronouns. God damn it, JR. Pronouns. Who's who's he? Who's they? Who are they? So okay, talk the to, government. Uh, <laughs> who sends who out there? Like is somebody coming out from the back to deliver messages from I mean Vince is trying yeah. to be on yeah. the air, but he can't communicate through the headset and he's not really yeah. on air and we're you're doing what you can to sort of hold this thing together with duct tape. But is there someone sort of running updates from the back or does Vince just get up and you Probably know, some stuff? somebody in production. Uh I think to stay in their spot was uh, symbolic to say that we're not going to leave our post and we're not going to give the audience any indication that this is not going to be rectified sooner than later. So everybody stayed for state put, but that doesn't mean that people were not coming out of the truck, uh, you know, a designatee to provide an update on what's going on. And, and that was a, that was a constant little trail of talent or talents. I say, uh, technicians, uh, give Vince an update. So. And, and they never had good news and the more bad news he gets, the worse things can become. And, uh, so it was, it was not a, it was not a pretty sight. It was a big epic fail. The company looked bad and having no generator was like, that's like, I was going to talk, I talked earlier about that, uh, that, uh, XFL thing, the generator there ran out of gas, right? Wink, wink. I think that was a, somebody was, I think Conrad, I know this could be rumor and innuendo, which is not my words. I think there was some skullduggery involved 
in L.A. You don't just come on. You're on that. You're on. You're on NBC, and you're going to run out of gas in your in your generator. Come on. So that that was the deal. It was, it was a it was a it was a bad night at the office, no doubt. Embarrassing for the company. I thought the card was embarrassing. Uh, it was in that process of trying to get a bulldog over and give Davy a push because he was, he was indicating he was unhappy creatively and wanted to leave or could leave. And we all knew now that WCW is down there, man. You've, we've got to start paying attention to all these contracts that are, uh, that are, that are, that are coming up for renewal. So it was not pretty. It was not a bad day, not a good car ride. So what's Spence's reaction? You know, this is a guy who we've heard and you've alluded to it before, you know, he flips out when someone sneezes and now mm-hmm. it's a dog on pay-per-view and he lost fucking power. What's the reaction? It ain't that he, he, uh, he's like, a, he was like a, uh, he was processing, he was strategizing, he's gathering information because that's not his area of expertise either. Uh, he was exploring what are our options tonight and they're just, they weren't plentiful and none of them were good. So, uh, but I think more than anything, he was just, like I said, gathering the info. It was a good, this was, a, I, I guess you could say this about the military. I'm sure over the, in the annals of time, obviously there've been some generals that were just amazing in the field. MacArthur, for example, Patton. Especially Patton, that fits Vince's personality. Might not have been so great as a general in an office, uh, but great in the field with the men with with bullets flying around. And I think that's that was Vince's strength on that night. He did not show, at least I can not recall, uh, he didn't he didn't raise any hell. He didn't cuss anybody out that I heard. And I'm sure that there were some heart to heart discussions uh, ongoing. But he really maintained his composure, and it helped stabilize the talent who weren't quite sure what the hell do we just do or what the hell do we just, we did we not do? So it was again, unprecedented new territory, but he, he seemed to steer the course to me and did not have, I think that some of the technical guys probably uh, got an ass chewing and some of the guys that were supposed to make sure, uh, if they weren't going to have an, uh, here's the thing I would say if I was in that area and I suggest we have a generator that I would sell, I would have sold that deal. I would have sold the fact that we have to have a generator. Somebody didn't press the issue hard enough because they got their valued Vince FaceTime. And for God's sakes, whatever you do, don't use it in a negative way, which is so misleading because he loves honesty. And somebody just said, we dropped the ball. It wasn't in a budget. It got cut back. Accounting cut it. You know, it's the the accountants cut it back, whatever. You can't let that happen. And I don't think it's ever, it hasn't happened since, but that's kind of where he was. I, I admired how he, he was very steadfast and solid uh, in the field on that day. You know, that's interesting because I think most people would assume it goes the other way. Let's keep it moving yeah. about the match. Yokozuna is going to pin Vader with a bonsai drop at about three minutes. Um, of course you, they're working in the dark, but the office is down on both of these guys. Uh, Meltzer says the belief is Vader isn't going to get over as the killer they'd hope for. Uh, so while he was the early favorite to win the King of the ring, uh, that is no longer the case. And Meltzer would say internally, it's being blamed on his weight. Not that he's too heavy, but that you can't make a killer heel out of someone who's not pushed as a killer. And he was immediately over after the monsoon angle once before, but now, uh, since they're down on his weight and they haven't really positioned him properly to be a monster, uh, he's just not going to be, 
Um, you know, we're going to talk about Vader a lot, but do you remember there being a discussion about, you know, here in, uh, towards the spring of 96, Hey, we're going to give Leon the big push because we did see SummerSlam and I'm sure we'll talk about SummerSlam 96 and how that match with Sean sort of soured Sean and plans changed and Sid came into the picture, but even here in spring, it's reported in the newsletter that maybe you guys were backing up on the idea that you're going to have him be this killer heel and run through everybody at King of the ring. Well, like I mentioned earlier, the issue became, uh, about health and, uh, you know, I, I brought Leon into, uh, help bring Leon into WCW with Stan Hansen based on a match I saw them have, uh, in, in Japan. And, uh, so we brought both guys in and the fact that, uh, Leon had been in that Japanese style. He had, he's a 400 pound guy taking magnificent bumps. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's moonsaulting at 400 pounds. Uh, well, probably I've often said this is Leon is probably the most athletic super heavyweight that I've ever been around. So we'll talk about that another time. I'm sure. But, uh, Yoko was, uh, you know, both guys were getting on that, that right on the precipice of not being able to pass a physical. And when you go into an event, like I said earlier, you go into, if, if they had plunked a physical in New York state, we could have used them anywhere. So then it was just as a fait accompli at somewhere sooner than later, they're going to be off the line. They're going to be unable to work. That's what I think cooled everybody on that a little bit. And Leon had a bunch of little nagging injuries that were just accumulation of contact and impact and, and the style. So, uh, I don't think we got down on them as much as we weren't sure we could rely on both of them based on their health and their weight. Let's uh, talk about the next match here. It's gold dust and undertaker in a casket match. They're going to go eight minutes. Uh, Vader, Justin Bradshaw, Helmsley, Yankum, and Austin all do a run in and put undertaker in the casket. Meltzer is really down on the match and said that it was an awful match. Um, of course, they're going to change that for the second one, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But, um, I should mention that there was uh, a bit of a feud going with Goldust and the undertaker here, and they got a little controversial on the 20th edition or the May 20th edition of the observer Meltzer would say that the angle was toned down greatly on television where they did a, a big jump cut because allegedly Goldust started licking up undertaker's thigh right to the point where undertaker stood up and they were shot. They were shooting this to where it looked, well, you can use your imagination and, and now they've decided to edit some of that out where you get it. Were you guys feeling the pressure from, you know, some outside agencies or activist groups, or did somebody just see the tape and say, uh, it might be a little too far. I think the latter, I think the latter, uh, again, uh, there's, there's a blessing and a curse about being in the pro wrestling business. Sometimes. Uh, we've gotten away in, in my career with some crazy things, racial, uh, homophobic, you know, all kinds of phobias, but because we were not a mainstream uh, entity, the, the, the business of wrestling, not a lot of people paid attention to that stuff. They didn't care. The ones that cared are the fans and they, the more, the more, the better. So, um, I, I think that, uh, you know, it was just bad taste. It wasn't good television. And the other thing about that, uh, you know, I, I never, I, maybe I was naive, 
but Conrad, I never foresee Goldust to be a gay character. Oh, I thought he was an, andro an androgynous kind of guy, but I might be wrong about that too. I mean, I can see the, the imaginations. Don't get me wrong, but I did never see him as that he was cast as a, a gay character. And, and maybe that was because maybe Marlena was his beard or whatever. And I didn't, we didn't want to go there. I don't know, but it was a, it was a very, very thin line. We were walking with that persona. And the one thing I'll say about Dustin, he, he pulled it off like a champion. I don't know of anybody in the business that could have been gold us other than Dustin Rhodes. Don't nobody. And it would be all due in all due respect. And she deserves the credit. Uh, his then wife was a, contributed a great deal to the success of that unit. And, uh, so I, I, but I don't, I never thought, did you think he was a gay character? Uh, here's my question, Jim. I mean, growing up as an Oklahoma an Okie, yeah. uh, you, you knew what the hell androgynous was. Mm -mm. <laughs> I can't even spell it today. I wrote myself a note on it. I think I spelled it phonetically. It's, it looks kind of funny. No, I, but that's kind of in, the, in those meetings. Sometimes people throw out a word. This is our cover our ass word. He's not gay. He's androgynous. Right. And, uh, what, wasn't there a character about that time on Saturday night live that the was androgynous the woman? Yeah, it was Pat. It's Pat. That was the guy. Right. So I think that was a, that was a cop out there. That was a tag out there. Was, but at know, the same time, and, you and, can't and, say, oh, it wasn't a gay character. When you also, when describing the character, say he's not gay, he's androgynous. If you have to say what he's not before you say what he is, then you're clearly yep. aiming at what he's not. Right. You're right. No, you're right about that. It, I'm not telling you it was handled beautifully. We wanted controversy. We wanted more questions asked than answered. <laughs> and I think we accomplished that. But again, his, uh, how, how, how Dustin added a wrinkle here and he added a wrinkle there, uh, right on through, he kept getting better, taking more chances, opening up the toolbox, no pun intended and, uh, bringing out the big stuff. He was great. He was great. He, nobody could have done it as good as that. I, I, I firmly believe that. So, uh, it was, uh, it was an interesting, uh, thing to me. That was very attitude era ish big time. Sure. You know, I, I mentioned this in the show. I, uh, that in one creative meeting, we were going to, uh, uh, have a Marlena have a prosthetic penis and it was going to be able to be the outline of it was going to be able to be seen through her attire on certain attire. And it was never going to be mentioned. It was never going to be, uh, uh, identified or look at that, you know, nothing. Uh, it was just, but the idea didn't make it out of the, the uh, the, um, the, uh, either the business office or his home or somewhere, uh, where, where they were having that particular creative meeting, uh, didn't, didn't, didn't go down, but that was kind of the idea. We wanted to get way out and Vince would say, take it as far as you think we can go. Let me know what you're thinking. And then we'll, then we'll reel it back if we need to. So we don't shoot ourselves in the foot. And that's kind of where we were with that goldust character. Every show was an experiment at how far we could go. Let's talk about, um, what you guys are going to do to sort of kill time. Uh, it's written in the newsletters that Jake Roberts comes out with Justin Bradshaw just to kill time until the lights go on. And as it turns out, they come on nearly immediately. So, uh, Jake hits the DDT and gets the pin. It only takes like 30 seconds. That sets us up for our main event, which is going to be back on the air. And it's Shawn Michaels defending his world title 
against Davy boy Smith. And the storyline here, which we're going to get into afterwards, uh, is that Davy boy, uh, his wife, Diana may or may not have eyes for Shawn Michaels. And there's a big controversy here. You actually confront Jim Cornette, uh, which is one of the weekend shows called action zone that weekend. And you confront Jim in a parking lot and Cornette promises that in your house, they'd have a huge, they're going to have a huge surprise for Shawn Michaels. That's going to throw him off and, uh, cost him the title. Of course, Shawn Michaels winds up having an off night, at least according to Dave Meltzer, he says he's in a bad mood the entire time. Um, and then afterwards, uh, there's a controversial finish. I guess we should mention that German suplex, both men's shoulders are down. The referees count. It looks like Davy boy won, but then a second ref says, no, that's not true. Um, and, and, and we're going to have a winner. Ultimately it's a no contest. It's a draw. They just throw it out. Gorilla monsoon rules it a double pin draw. And Shawn Michaels is furious and has an in-ring temper tantrum at the guy who cues the music. That's according to the observer. Uh, and Dave says that this was actually edited off the show. Do you remember Sean being in a particularly bad mood? Was it related to the weather and the blackout, uh, his opponent, the storyline, the creative life, two C's Connie, two C's baby cash and creative, uh, creatively, uh, Sean's, uh, foundation there was taking a, a hit because, you know, his, uh, his, his closest buddies were, uh, were more than willing to leave and leave him there with Hunter. Uh, so I think that that was an issue. I think that, uh, Sean was burning out rapidly. I think his back was killing him. I think he was tired of being dependent on painkillers. I think he was tired of being unhappy. Hence he goes home for four years, not too far, not long after that. So, uh, but you know, it's, it, I don't remember the specifics of that Conrad, but him being in a bad mood, uh, because he was very meticulous and creative. He knew what he wanted to do, what he could do, what he could deliver better. There's no way in the world. If I was set down with Sean before I released the match, it was going to be a bulldog and Sean that I would not have asked Sean, are you cool with this? Because if you're not cool today, it doesn't mean we can never do it. All it means is you're not cool today for whatever reason it may be. So then the other answer would be as a booker, an owner, whatever, who do you want to work with and how can we get there? But I don't think that was done. I think he was assigned here. I think he wanted to have more of a say in what, who is being worked, who he was working with. And I, I don't know that, uh, you know, I don't know that, uh, Davey and Sean were bitter enemies any, anywhere along this deal. They, they, I don't know how well they got along because. Sean had that animosity with Brett and Brett was Davy's brother-in-law. So I could see all those little things, uh, having a, having a factor, but you know, I don't, it's just, it, it, there were a lot of days where you didn't know what Sean you're going to get. And I, it was bad because you saw this uh, arguably at that time, you know, the, you, when you say, who's the greatest in-ring performers you ever saw, well, you're the first guy you're going to say is Rick and the Nate. And then it became Sean. And so it wasn't like we were dealing with some ham and egger here. You're dealing with one of the greatest performers ever. And you got to manage those guys in, in a, in a unique way. All wrestlers are not created equal and all wrestlers should not be treated the same. Sorry. I piss anybody off on that one. But if you're going to, if you're going to, if you're going to treat your, uh, you're going to treat Becker Mayfield in Cleveland, like you are the backup quarterback, then you're screwing up. Something's wrong.
Right? Should, that's not the right priority of your time. Probably ought to mention this is Sean's second big pay-per-view match post WrestleMania. Of course, he beat Brett for the world title at WrestleMania 12. That's in March. Fast forward to April. He's working in your house. Good friends, better enemies against his very good friend, Diesel. Diesel's on his way out after that, of course. But at the end of that pay-per-view is where we see Bulldog searching for Sean. And he's accusing Sean of trying to sleep with his wife, Diana Hart Smith. And they have a confrontation on raw. And then during the Kuwaiti tour, uh, where we saw Bulldog throw Sean into the ocean and they have a bunch of other interactions. And eventually Diana even takes out a restraining order on Sean. And this is an interesting choice at this time, uh, for Bulldog at least because uh, well, he's got some contractual stuff that we're going to get into that bubbles to the surface here. First though, I want to mention in August of 95 is the first time bulldog turned heel for his WWF career. And he turned on then champion diesel and challenged diesel unsuccessfully for the title at an, in your house. A few months later, he's back in the world title picture, this time challenging Brent Hart for the world title and in your house, which is a rematch from their SummerSlam 92 match. And now fast forward six months later, he's back in the title picture. So it feels like, uh, him becoming heels, almost like a new lease on life. Maybe when you guys looked at the roster, you realized, Hey, we're, we're kind of depleted on the heel side. We could slide Davey over and he benefits greatly and moves up the card. Why was he sort of the go-to whether it was for diesel or it was for Brett or now here, Sean talent, Davey had great talent, uh, and the, the thing, the only, the only negative I ever had with Davey is certainly what his talent, uh, or his, his, uh, it was his, sometimes his attitude, he was, let me put it this way. Davey was easily influenced by those around him sometimes. And it, it, the boys love to rib their, their peers. I, I can't tell you how many, I've been in the middle of a lot of payoff discussions where a guy says, I've got screwed in my payoff. I didn't make as much as my opponent. Uh, not they should, or they have to, that's another misnomer. Uh, and so they'd say what the other guy got made. And I said, I get the guy in the room again. Now they're both face to face. So tell me, tell me again, just what you said about his payday. And then he said, well, you, you told me that you made a hundred grand. And I'd look at the guy I'm like, okay, here, all right. Really? And it's, Hey, I was only ribbing, man. The great wrestlers cop out. I was only teasing. I was only ribbing you. Come on, brother. So it get us talent stirred up and Davey at times was easy to stir up. I also would say that Davey was a lot, a lot of those guys in that era, they worked through a lot of pain. So sometimes it was just hard to get positive. So, uh, you know, I, I remember talking to Davey one time, he was so frustrated and he wasn't getting the matches that he wanted. And Vince was, you know, using him as a, you know, a, a lot, but I don't know that Davey had a big hand in the uh, direction of his character. And he was trying to have some direction it seemed like, but, uh, it just didn't happen. And I was asking one time I was in the Vince said, JR check on Davey. I see, make sure he's all right. I said, what do you mean? Well, you know, physically, but anyway, just, so I said, all right. So I, I, I start having little meetings and this conversations with Davey. And so I finally say, you know, Vince and I are concerned about you. What do you mean? I said, well, are you, you, are you, you're, we don't see the same Davey. Let's put that. Why does it cut to the chase, Davey? I ain't saying you're phoning it in to say, we ain't seeing the same Davey. Cause you're so goddamn good that we don't see in that. So goddamn good product right now. And he was very frustrated about his creative, 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 
and very frustrated about a spot on a card. And he said to me this, and I'll never forget it. He said, JR, I will, you'll see the old Davy when I get my push. And I never, I don't think I ever told that to Vince because Davy would have buried himself right there. And there's no reason to get him farther down the, down the road, uh, on the negative way going south. So that's, he, that was his mindset. I think he was misguided. I don't, I can't believe that a, a old time, a guy that started wrestling is 15, 16 years old, been around forever and grew up in the Calgary thing and been visited the dungeon more than one occasion, married into the family, had children. I'm, I'm a, I'm a massive fan of Davy's son, uh, Harry. I think Harry's a star for any company, a star. Uh, and I'd love to call his matches again someday, but nonetheless, uh, you know, he, he, he just, again, that influence of other guys, but I protected him as best I could. Cause I was no damn way. I'm going to go tell Vince. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, oh, Davey said he'd start working harder whenever, uh, we gave him his push. I, know, I, don't... I know some of our listeners are going to say, well, what's wrong with that? But it, it's a, let's make a real life analogy. It's like saying, Hey, make me the manager and I'll start showing up on time. Uh-huh. You're right. Yeah, you're right. It's, uh, it's not, it's just, it's not good. And it, but I, we, he could, he could have been a lot bigger help if he had been booked better. And, uh, sometimes you need to make changes and who you're hanging around with and all that stuff. And, you know, we had a lot of guys that were in the locker room, some left, some stayed. They're really good about, uh, milking their, their buddies and that ribbing on the square thing. Let me, uh, let's. I feel like we're tiptoeing a little bit, I want you to just say it straight up. There's been rumors that a lot of Davey's problems started when he started palling around with Lex Luger. Is that what you're sort of trying to insinuate without saying? I didn't think about Lex, but I know there were buddies and there was, there, uh, apparently there were drugs in play and anytime that, that is added and Davey had some issues with there. Uh, and that's no secret. Of course, in WWE, he'd have gotten all the help he needed if he just asked for it, or, or maybe we should have done an intervention or whatever. Uh, he was an old school guy. Probably did an intervention on him, would have sure got a good way to get him to leave, uh, even though he needed it. You're down if you do, and down if you don't. Sometimes, I think who you run with is a good lesson in anybody's life. You know, uh, I'm running around with you because you're going to make me a lot of money, and <laughs> and I <laughs> and I like you. But seriously, the you can't. You, 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 you gotta be careful who your damn friends are, especially what? in this, this business, and especially then, what? especially then. I mean, why, why are you being that? Who was, who was a bad influence on Davey? Well, Davey was the worst influence on Davey, sure. but if Davey was a pound around, uh, Davey and Lex are got to be buddies. And, and I thought that at the beginning, that was probably not going to be a bad deal because Lex, I thought was very, very clean sure, and, and didn't have those issues. I thought, well, hell, this is a good move for Davey smartening up. Right. But that unfortunately didn't happen, uh, apparently. So I don't know who all he ran with, you know, uh, uh, I, him, him running, him uh, being around the heart. I'm not certainly not saying the hearts, you know, I, was, I know that, um, when Sean got beat up, you know, at the, uh, at the, at the bar by the Marines, he was with, uh, Davey and he was with Sean Waltman or was he palling around with the click a little bit? And maybe, uh, there were one too many somas or. Could be, it certainly could happen. I, I can't, I couldn't put my hand on the Bible and say, well, that's exactly what happened, but you gotta, it wouldn't hold up in a court, but it's a lot of circumstantial evidence there that, uh, 
again, proving again, you got to select your friends very closely. Sometimes it's, it's more important to, to select your friends closely as to worry about who your enemies are. Cause in a wrestling business, unfortunately, the, the insecurities and the, uh, the egos are massive by and large. And especially in that era, guys didn't trust their own roommate. So, uh, Hey, I seen the click play jokes on Sean Waltman many times or you'd say, okay, what happened? Well, yeah, I think the kid had too much to drink. No, he got, he got ace bombed. He got summoned. What are we going to do when somebody dies out of art to, to, to pull off the practical joke? Hey brother, we're just ribbing. Come on. Yeah, let so us have some fun. You mentioned H bomb. I think some of our listeners don't know, but you're talking about a specific type of drug that guys would crush up and put in another guy's drink. And that would put him out like a light. The name of the drug is Halcyon. Yeah. Halcyon. And, uh, very popular in that era. And the Soma was very popular in that era. You know, uh, I'm a poor Louis Vicoli. He was, he got to be a real prisoner of that stuff. And it was sad. It's just sad. It just, it disables you bad decisions. Your body starts to disintegrating. It's just bad stuff, man. And, and so I've, I'm a big believer in the, in the drug testing program and not and for things like that. You know, I'm not a, not the weed thing. I don't, I think that, Hey, I'd rather have my talents. This is not going to go over well either. But it, you know it's our show, so I don't give a shit. Uh, so I'm going to be honest. If I'm not going to be honest here anymore, I'll just I'll quit. But I'm not. I'm going to be honest. That is, uh, you know these these uh, the mayor. I'd rather have a talent go to his room and smoke a joint, or a bowl full, as to be down uh, down the street at a, at a uh, men's establishment, trying to reestablish they're the alpha male while they're getting drunk and getting hustled by women that are smarter than them. Go to your room, order a goddamn pizza. Watch spank revision, what do you got to do and, and stay in your room. And if you want to get, have get a buzz get a buzz and order a pizza, as I said, and, but that's not too politically correct, but you know, the road is not politically correct. It's probably more so now than ever, but that's kind of where I look at that deal. Conrad, you know, just who you associate with, I think that he ran with some wrong people that influenced him and then he got hooked and then he, he got to where he was dependent and that's just a sad state for anybody to get. Let's talk about the cash and creative here for bulldog. One of the things I noticed in my research is it does feel like bulldog always wound up on the losing end. Whenever he would have a match with Sean on Saturday night's main event, Sean wins his first intercontinental title over bulldog. That's back in November of 92, uh, Royal rumble 95, uh, this down to just Sean and bulldog. Sean eliminates bulldog to win the match March 6th on raw. Uh, Sean beats bulldog. Sean eliminates bulldog at the Royal rumble 96. And now he's beating him here at beware of dog. That would continue by the way, for throughout their run, uh, he would beat bulldog on October 28th here in 96. And then at their famous one night only show, uh, in England, which I'm sure we'll cover another time in 97. Do you know, you know, especially on the heels of a comment you just made, like, you know, you'll see the old Davey when you give me the push. Do you know if it ever bothered bulldog that he never really got a win over Sean? I'm sure it did. He was a competitor. He was, he, he had a strong personality, very competitive, very proud guy was Davey boy Smith. And, uh, I don't know that maybe he felt like he, you know, missed his opportunity when he was younger. He was in too many tags. Hell, I don't know, but I can tell you that, you know, losing to Sean for some guys was not the most pleasant thing because they thought he might be, Sean might be getting over, getting one over on them. 
but yeah, absolutely. But again, you got to remember where Sean was at that time. He had the rocket ship attached. He was the guy. He was the it guy. I, th- I think it bothered Davey that he had never beaten Sean in a, in a big time situation. But again, uh, Davey proud guy, old school guy. And, uh, you know, he, he was, he's educated on the street, so to speak, because he got in wrestling so young and Sean was not the most popular guy in the locker room for a variety of reasons. And so, uh, losing to Sean for some guys was a, got a little personal. We knew that the, that Sean and, and Brett's issues were very public in a lot of ways, certainly in our world, uh, I don't think I ever got, I don't think I ever made sports center. <laughs> it's, seriously, it's, it's in our world. So I, th- I think there's a lot of issues there that were latent. And here's the other thing, Conrad, you and I'll never ident- be able to identify with this because this is on our world as a elite athlete, like Davy boy Smith was, and he could probably feel there are certain things that were happening to his body that he couldn't control, uh, where you know, nagging injuries, those type of things. And sometimes when an athlete gets into that predicament, they'll do drastic things, uh, to try to close the gap. And uh, that's why I've always preached that it's recruits, you know, you gotta have a plan B of some kind. And then someone said, well, you know, in our generation, like I, my generation, they wouldn't figure this out. Well, in our generation, Jr. is all or nothing. That's our lifestyle. That's how we live our life. I said, well, you're a dumbass. Hell, learn to be a plumber. Learn to do something because this shit ain't going to last forever. And you're not saving your money. So what are you going to do? How are you going to maintain this opulent lifestyle? How many more Rolexes are you going to buy? How many more boobs are you going to buy for your girlfriends? So, uh, that was kind of my take on that. But I think Davey saw himself that he was father time was catching up and there's not a damn thing he or any of us could do about it. So Sean's frustrated with the match. You know, the, the power went out. Uh, Davey hasn't been happy with the creative and we'll drill into that. Um, but in between the power going out on Sunday, this is the 26th and now the 28th on Tuesday, McMahon gets word that Davey has given his 90 day notice to the WWF, which allows him to leave the company when his contract expires at the end of August. So, uh, unlike previous notices, this is directly from the observer with hall Nash and DiBiase. This wasn't the case of another performer giving notice as a prelude to signing a contract with WCW. Um, Meltzer would say that according to various versions of the story he received, uh, Davey and the Hart family are under the impression that the conclusion of the angle was going to be that it was actually Diana Smith who had come on to Shawn Michaels and that he rebuffed her and that she was making up the story and filing a lawsuit, which I don't know when we'll talk about Clarence again as a way to get revenge for being turned down. And they're under the impression that the conclusion of the story is going to exonerate Michaels in the lawsuit. And there's going to be surveillance camera tape that would air supposedly, uh, at the pay-per-view that's going to show Diana coming on physically and aggressively to Sean in a darkened area backstage quote, Stu and Helen Hart and Bret Hart were all said to have been upset with how they believed Diana was going to be portrayed in the angle since her television character is herself and not someone who doesn't exist using a pseudonym like Sable or Sonny, obviously playing a character that they aren't, that, that they aren't. And the other version uh, was there was an entire situation that was basically a misunderstanding 
uh, that's going to put heat on Jim Cornette and Clarence Mason and not Diana Smith. Um, so there's a couple of different ways they could have gotten out of this, but the Hart family is not happy with the idea that it might be Diana who was the pursuer of Shawn Michaels. When did you hear that maybe Davey wasn't thrilled with that creative? Well, I, it was pitched, uh, and I was in some pitch meeting or, or setting in or whatever. And I heard that it laid out and as it was laid out, it wasn't a bad idea except for one thing. No one had, had, had gone to the trouble or the effort or the professionalism to pitch it to, uh, the family, the heart family. And cause you're right, Conrad, she wasn't playing a character. She was herself. And, you know, I remember, uh, you know, Stu was old school, man. And then a lot of, a lot of love and respect for Stu Hart. Uh, but he, he felt that, the I remember him talking about, uh, that he didn't like the idea because it made his daughter look like a whore. <laughs> so I, I, and I, if I, Hey, I got two daughters, I could get it. And I understand, Hey, it's fiction, JR, it's Broadway. It's, you know, okay. Then give me a, give me a Broadway name and put this thing really in a, in a strong, uh, you know, this is just entertainment folks. We're winking at you, but it wasn't done that way. It was done very reality based. They, it was like, we're going to steal some reality and we're going to make fiction out of it. But none of that was true either. So I, I never understood why the communication to me, that whole idea was mismanaged, miscommunicated because it had some potential to be good in theory. But if you're, if your people aren't, aren't uh, comfortable with it, Conrad, you can't, you can't just forge ahead because it's what we want to do. Somewhere along the way, we has got to consider what the talents want to do and how this is going to affect them, uh, in, in, in their everyday life. And this is not going to be a pleasant situation. Understanding that th- at that time, I believe that, uh, Diana and David still live in Calgary, very small, you know, it's a big town, but a small town, small town feel, and they got to live there. And some people don't still don't get it. This, this shit is not life and death. It's actually fiction. Some people don't get that. Yeah. And it looks like, um, every there's hurt feelings all around to the point that, uh, allegedly Stu called and wanted to talk to Jim Cornette and Owen hands him and hands Jim the phone and says it's Stu. Of course, that's Owen and Brett's dad and Diana's dad. And Jim thinks it's Bruce Pritchard doing a Stu impression, which he's done many times on something to wrestle. And Stu is explaining why he doesn't like this creative. And he's wondering, Hey, who's doing this? And of course, Jim says, Oh, it's Bruce Pritchard. Uh, and of course, you know, he's thinking he's talking to Bruce Pritchard and Stu says, well, I didn't know that this was Bruce's idea, but why does Bruce want her to look like a whore? It's going to be rough on the kids. It's going to make her look like a whore. And, and Jim says that Bruce Pritchard is one of those perverts that goes to the adult bookstore wearing a raincoat doing the five knuckle shuffle. And he's, you know, he's all about hookers and dildos. And this is all his idea. And of course, Stu's like, well, I got to talk to Vince about this. And then eventually Jim hangs up the phone and asks, oh, and so, Hey, why didn't you tell me that was Bruce? And he says, no, that was really Stu the entire time. So Jim may have accidentally <laughs> made great things, stories of business. Jim may have accidentally made things a little worse than they needed to be accidentally. Um, and he, and you guys are driving this home, even on the weekend shows, you're interviewing Marty Janetti, who's uh, part of the new rockers here with, um, 
Al Snow, Leaf Cassidy. And he's saying, Hey, back when me and Sean were teaming after the matches, Sean would only go after the married women. When do you guys sit down and have a conversation with Davy boy and, and sort of fix all this? I don't know if it ever got fixed. Quite frankly, I think there are hurt feelings about it all along. You know, I, I Hey, I think the world of the, the hearts, I, I've spent time there, you know, in that bill for WrestleMania 12, uh, I had great conversation with Stu. I, I just loved all of it. And I love their families. Hey, there's some crazy people in their family. It's like mine, just like yours probably. But nonetheless, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I she, it just never fit for me. I always thought that she was above that. I, I love the role that she played, but she played herself by the way, at the SummerSlam 92 in Wembley. That was a good role for Diana. Right. It was perfect. It fit. It was, I didn't have to roll my eyes. Oh, come on. You guys can do better than this, but that's, that's the deal. I, I just think that I never thought that was a good fit for her. Uh, and maybe I'm a mark for the hearts and a mark for Diana, but I just didn't think that it was a, a good fit for a lady in that regard. Cause she didn't want to be, uh, she wasn't looking for work. It was, she was brought into this thing kind of. I don't, I'm not going to say kicking and screaming because she's old school too. She was booked. She's going to try to get it done, but I don't think she was ever comfortable being brought in and expanding the role that she had at SummerSlam 92. Let's finish up the show here. Uh, the original night of in your house, beware of dog, the power's back on the pay-per-view's over, but we're still going to try to entertain the live crowd. Who's had to sit through some, uh, pretty painful, dark times here, literally. Uh, Ahmed Johnson would pin Jerry Lawler in seven minutes. The ultimate warrior would be on last beating Owen Hart in four minutes. Uh, mm. And then raw is, uh, on the air the next day from Fayetteville, North Carolina, the ultimate warrior is going to fight gold to a double count out. And then we get the big apology from Vince McMahon, uh, about what's happened with the, um, the in your house show and losing power. Um, gold is going to, uh, this is a famous skit that we saw for a long time. Uh, Goldust is going to bow as if he's leaving, but Ahmed Johnson picks him up and carries him to the ring. And a few minutes later, Goldust shoves warrior into a chair. Uh, there's a big melee here and that's going to set up Goldust having an issue with, um, Ahmed Johnson moving forward. Uh, you, you guys air some, some footage from the Sunday free for all here. You're trying to do what you can, uh, to do the right thing. And McMahon is even saying that he's encouraging viewers to call their cable companies regarding Sunday's power outage. And he said, I'm sure they'll do the right thing. And you're trying to push that. Hey, you can see everything you need to see tomorrow on the replay. We haven't talked about this yet, but I mean, what do you suspect this power incident cost the company? Because Meltzer would say there was almost no interest in the replay because there was no real main event match. And the, the build main event was already seen by everyone and it was a below par match and a poor finish and not anything people should get particularly excited about for 20 bucks. So when you know that, Hey, we lost power, we're going to have to do this replay thing. We're going to have to try to, you know, do so, uh, another live show and try to make good. I mean, what we're talking about is more expense and less revenue, right? Absolutely. And also during a time where, uh, bankruptcy or reorganization within the WWE in those mid nineties was, was a, was a legitimate concern and topic of discussion. So, uh, I would say that we 
more than likely, I'm guessing, educated guess would be it was a, a minimum of a low seven figures, a million, million and a half, you know, somewhere in that, a, north, a million or north thereof. No matter what it was, it's money we didn't have to, to, to spend or to lose because it was a tough time. It was a whole, what an attitude era time. This is not everything's running crazy. Uh, this is challenging. And you got talentless leaving for guaranteed contracts because we didn't have the bankroll to guarantee all the contracts. And how do you have a team and you only got two or three guys that's got guaranteed money and everybody else is fending for themselves? That's a good way to split the locker room. You're asking for it. So it was a, it was a bad weekend. And that's when I, you asked me earlier about this show, I was underwhelmed when he suggested it, but I, when I found further review, as I said, it's a compelling goddamn weekend. It was a, it, a lot of things changed as a result of this event. No doubt about it. Uh, this episode of raw, we see the smoking guns, uh, beat the body Donna's, uh, they're going to retain here. And then we get Vader pinning Ahmed Johnson. And this is the first time Ahmed has been pinned. Owen Hart is going to join Vince and Lawler on uh, color. And eventually there's a melee here where, uh, Goldust finds himself involved again. Uh, we should mention that, uh, Ahmed's going to get stretchered out. And here's that famous moment. Goldust is going to give Ahmed mouth to mouth to revive him. And of course, when Ahmed wakes up, he goes berserk looking for Goldust, uh, <laughs> and they would play that skit for a long, long time. And what a creative way to illustrate homophobia. Really? I mean, you know, we did some, like I said, and I'm not certainly, well, JR is not, he's back away from everything. He didn't have any responsibility. Yeah. I had some responsibility. If I, if he laughed at Vince's idea or somebody else's idea, the room would be, here's this outlandish idea. Go as far as you can. I'll pull us back. Uh, and that's how that worked. And it just was, it was daunting, man. And so again, every day was a different day. Especially with the character Goldust. Goldust had a lot more versatility, a lot more potential upside than did uh, Ahmed. Don't call me Buck Johnson. No doubt about it. Let's talk about the uh, the replay. Uh, you weren't doing commentary the first night uh, w- when we tried in your house beware a dog. You do find yourself here doing commentary the second time. Uh, what's the reason for the adjustment? Why is Vince out? Why are you in? Well. I don't think he felt like it was, uh, important for him to move around the deck chairs on the Titanic. So, uh, here, here I, I, I work with, uh, Mr. Perfect actually. And, uh, he did this, this had already got soiled this thing, man. He, he had stank on him from that, uh, you know, for that Sunday night debacle of mother nature. I think he just didn't want to be a part of it anymore. I think he wanted to, he said, let's, we need something different, man. And then of course, you know, uh, he's doing raw and. So it wasn't like, you know, he's not getting his exposure. I just think he was kind of embarrassed by how it all went. You know, give JR a shot and let him, uh, see if he can pull this thing out of the, out of the, out of our, of our ass and make something out of these matches that we're going to broadcast. So that was what I did. And I was awful fired up about it too, because I finally got back into a situation where I wasn't being mired into a show just where I'm strictly one dimensional and doing like the action zone or, or something, you know, some other live wire or whatever. Uh, I was actually back doing wrestling at an event, at an arena, sitting at ringside, calling action, which is what I love to do more than damn near anything. So, uh, I was happy to get the assignment, but you know, it wasn't my time. Uh, I was already on the road, you know, I was there, I knew the storylines and he knew how badly I wanted to do it. So 
Uh, I think that's why I got the shot at it. But, you know, there's no way Vince is going to come back on the, on, on the air after that debacle on Sunday and, and then doing raw on Monday and then trying to resurrect all that stuff. So, uh, I'm, I'm glad I got the shot at it. It was, it was a fun, fun to get back in the game a little bit. I guess we should mention that, um, your assignment for this week is to go watch this match. You're going to watch one match on the network from the good old days. You should go watch Savio Vega and Steve Austin. Uh, they're going to be in a strap match again here. And this time they're not beating the shit out of each other in the dark. You can see it. And Jr. has got his working shoes on and they get four stars here. It is a phenomenal match. And this match marks the end of Ted DiBiase's WWF career. So it's pretty monumental here. Um, it's a big moment for Steve Austin. You know, he's just one month away from winning the King of the ring. Uh, it's the end of Ted DiBiase's career. Uh, and Jr. is calling matches on pay-per-view again. So I, I, I think it was a, I think it was a, uh, a pivotal moment for my run there, Conrad, that, you know, uh, Vince gave me that shot and then me delivering, or at least I, we all think I delivered. Uh, he did. That's all that really mattered. It's all that mattered. period. Uh, so it got me back in the game a little bit for that. I'm always going to be grateful, but you know, anytime you get that opportunity to do what you love to do, you got to feel blessed. So it was, it was a good, as shitty as the weekend was as much money as the company lost, which is very unfortunate. There's things that came out of it that we knew that we had, we could, we could hang our hats on a few things. The main thing is just what Conrad, which what you mentioned, watch that Savio Vegas, Steve Austin match. You'll see why. That event on that weekend, uh, separated Steve from the, from the pack and he, and he, and he lost the match, which goes to tell you that if you do it right and you're a good enough performer and you got the stories, got a good back, you got a good backstory, et cetera, et cetera. Losing is not the kiss of death. It sure as hell a lot better than some of the wrestling I've been watching here lately, where you have the baby face goes over and then, then the heel beats the shit out of him. Or vice versa. This happens a lot in, on, on televised wrestling. The baby face gets his win, and there's, we feel good, and boom, here, here the, the, they lower the boom. I watched a match the other night where a top heel finally gets a win, and then everything is the other guy who just lost. There's 50-50 booking, in other words, and nobody advances their TV persona by having being booked that way. And as long as companies continue to do that, thinking they got to make everything even, God damn it, man. There ain't no even let somebody get a momentum and let them move and move up, move up upward mobility. And you can't have upward mobility with 50, 50 booking. It is, it is sociologically and psychologically impossible. And for some people, it's just by God, you're going to like it if it kills me. And that's kind of where we are. And I don't think that's good. Well, I want to mention here that, uh, you were in a good place after this pay-per-view Meltzer would write Jim Ross handled the announcing for the make good hour of the wear of dog pay-per-view on May 28th yeah. uh, and did the best job of announcing of anyone on a WWF or WCW pay-per-view in a long time. He was really fired up after months on the sidelines and even having to carry Kurt Henning as a crutch couldn't slow him down. So a big praise here for your job announcing Vader's going to get a win over Yokozuna, two and a half stars. Your main event on the replay is gold dust and undertaker in a casket match. And this is kind of a fun finish because we've got mankind in the casket and he's going to put, uh, his finishing maneuver on, which Meltzer would note Jim Ross is calling the mandible claw. Of course, that mandible claw is going to go on to be something we're all super familiar with. Uh, and then a bunch of smoke comes from the casket when it's finally opened Undertaker isn't in the casket. Uh, so two and a half stars. The show does a 0.45 buy rate, 
which brings in around 110,000 buys. But that's before you take into account all the refunds that are being factored in. Uh, and uh, it's pretty crazy because DirecTV is only issuing a $10 refund to those who yeah. complained, but other folks are giving a full refund. So you guys really have no freaking idea how much money you're making on this thing. No, and not enough, obviously. And everybody got a different story to tell. You're dealing with all these different cable companies, these different distributors. They all got their own prerogative. And again, it's not like we're the high, highbrow, uh, entity, uh, but that's before the boom. And, uh, it was still just pro wrestling. Just is it all those wrestling guys, you know, they, they don't, they, they won't go away. They're like cockroaches. You can't kill them. So, uh, that's kind of how I looked at that. You know, there's no respect in that respect in that situation, but yeah, it's, it was, it was a cluster, man. It was a cluster. We got, we, we figured out that stone cold was the guy even more. So another, another a log on the fire. We saw that Goldust could have a great match against the, the seemingly unpenetratable Undertaker. Uh, I thought that that finish was interesting. We, it was a nice way to introduce uh, uh, the issue between Taker and Mankind, which we know became something of uh, folklore. So it, all these things that we talk about, and even when there's, well, it didn't work well, that was a tough deal. There are good things that come out of all these situations. If you look for them and we're not overly critical about how much the show suffered because of reason a, B or C. So uh, I, I was uh, going back and doing the prep on this. I, I saw, Hey, there were some wins in this thing. You know, uh, there's good ideas were inter- introduced. Sonny being a bitch, uh, a mean spirited cheating woman with the cocky, uh, you know, just turned baby faces, young guns or smoking guns rather was a, a, a smart move. It's just, it didn't work as well as we wanted to, but if our criteria is that we got a creative idea, Conrad, and it doesn't work, does it automatically become a bad idea? I don't think that's accurate because sometimes things are not executed as they were envisioned. Sometimes the talent dropped the ball and, and sometimes it's, you don't ha- they don't have anybody to work with the Godwins and the guns are not going to draw a lot of money. But I think the young, I think that the smoking guns had a, uh, had a chance to be, uh, really special heels, but we didn't have any, think about what baby face of teams we have for, to work with. I don't know. I can't even remember. So it wasn't fair to them in that regard. So there's a lot of reasons things don't work, but just because they don't work doesn't mean they always suck. Well, and this match did not suck, or this show did not suck. The uh, Wrestling Observer Reader poll would show 64.6% thumbs up, 26.2% thumbs down, 9.2% thumbs in the middle. The best match overwhelmingly, according to the readers of the Observer, is Savio Vega and Steve Austin. The worst match, believe it or not, is Shawn Michaels and Davey Boy Smith. Uh, you watched this show for the first time in a long time this week, JR. What'd you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. On that last match or the whole show in the general, the whole show, uh, I, I, I'd probably say thumbs in the middle. Uh, it just had so many distractions and so many things to take our eye off the ball. Uh, you know that we needed that last match to deliver in a bigger way. And I, I if you told me that, uh, before that show that days, uh, Meltzer's poll would have had Sean and Davy boy would be the worst match on the, on the card. I just said, you're crazy. I'll take all that. You can, let's put some money on that deal. And I'd have lost my ass because I just never envisioned that happening Again, personalities, uh, timing, 
communication, cash and creative rears this ugly head and two guys that should have had a five-star match and, and close that show. Like, you know, two hall of famers that they are didn't get it done that day. Well, we hope that we got it done for you this week here on the show next week. We're going to do something totally different. Uh, we're going to cover a show that, uh, has almost been taboo for a little while, but we think we can, we can turn a, a negative into a positive and we want to celebrate the life, uh, of Owen Hart. Uh, but we're going to do it on the 20 year anniversary of his passing. When we cover over the edge, 1999, uh, one of the more, uh, unbelievably heartbreaking moments in the history of professional wrestling, where we tragically lost Owen Hart in an accident from a stunt gone awry. We'll cover the pay-per-view. We'll cover the news and notes, but of course, all anybody really remembers from that show is that we lost Owen Hart and, uh, we want to, uh, go back and take a look at that show, talk about what happened, uh, and, and tell some, some happy stories, some, some pranks, some ribs, have some laughs to celebrate the late, great Owen Hart. Yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Believe it or not. Uh, and it's, it shows for me, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta find more courage. Uh, I don't want to be the cowardly lion here. I need a heart when it comes to no pun intended there either. You know, I, until I wrote, we wrote to Paul O'Brien, I wrote uh slobber knocker, my life in wrestling, which by the way is available to Amazon still kicking ass. Thank you. Uh, I had not looked at that tape, not one second that, of that, of that night, not had heard of the word. I didn't want to hear my voice. I didn't watch any clips for years and years and years. I'd never peeked at that. And I'm, I'm, I came, I got enough courage through teary eyes to watch the, the Owen situation there that night. Cause everything else really didn't matter it, it, for me at that point. And I, it was hard, but, uh, there are, there were great memories of knowing him, the most lovable, likable guy ever in the business, uh, a wonderful human being. So I want to watch it this time. I want to watch the whole show. And, uh, cause I know it's, my memory is going to be flooded with things sitting at that announce table, knowing that you just saw what you thought pretty sure that one of your best talents, your best friends, the best people you've met in the business get killed within a matter of feet from your very eyes is something that you never will forget. And I know that my emotions on that day, when we start talking about it, are going to be varied because this is just a, this is a, this is one of those deals where you. You load the wagon. Don't worry about the mules, Conrad. Just load the goddamn wagon. Let's go get it. Well, let's get it next week right here when we talk about Over the Edge 1999 and remember Owen Hart. We hope you're digging what we're doing. Stay tuned for more. Uh, we're going to have polls and much more information coming up on our Twitter handle. You can follow all things show-related on Twitter at JR Grilling. And don't forget to tell your friends and family to uh, leave us a review. If they like the good old days of professional wrestling, who better to tell Jim's story than Jim? As we revisit the good old days of professional wrestling through his purview, Jr. had a lot of fun today, and uh, Me too, looking buddy. forward to uh, seeing you next week in Las Vegas. But before yeah. we get there, going to do a little over the edge action. Sounds good to me, man. We'll see you next week right here on Grilling Thanks, Jr. Buddy. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together. 
it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.